I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday. Uh, We are recording live on June 7, uh, which is our first official recording of Pride Month. Yay! Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride. So lovely to see all of the flags out and all of the support. And then really sad to go on social media and hear about all of the hate crimes that are happening. Mm. Um, One of our local museums had their pride flags cut and burned over the weekend. What? Are you serious? I didn't see that. Yeah. Um, Which, again, just a great reminder that Pride Month really fucking matters because there are plenty of people who are still bigoted. Oh, that's horrible to hear. Well, you had that happen once. Yeah, I had my pride flag stolen. Yeah. And then what did you do? (laughs) Uh, Bought a million others and had <laughs> I had pride bunting I had a pride flag I had many pride flags all down my driveway I love it <laughs> if you take one I will come back with a hundred <laughs> well you know it 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 always made an impact on me at one point um my next door neighbors told me that when they were out looking for houses and they were looking at the house next to ours they noticed, I, I don't remember what I had. I had some sort of bumper sticker, my pride or something like that. And they said that that made such an impact on them to know that it was like a safe neighbor. Yep. Somebody who would help them in, and more than anything, be accepting. And so it, that just made such an impact on me. And so I feel like it, pride month, but all the time, just to have those public shows of support really, really makes a difference. It's true. You know, we have our pride flag um, in front of our house. And a couple years ago, um, somebody in my neighborhood, I lead a neighborhood committee, and someone came to one of our meetings and said that she had just come back, that she grew up in this neighborhood many, many years ago, you know, like three, four decades ago, and that she had come back to help her mom and um, she had walked by our house, and we live kind of on a corner across from a big park, and so it's pretty visible. And she saw our pride flag, and she started crying um, because when she was growing up in this neighborhood and went to the high school, which is right next to us, she was bullied Mm -hmm. for being gay. And Mm -hmm. there just wasn't a whole lot of support back then, and it definitely... Um, she didn't feel like she could be herself. And so she said it was really healing to come back to this neighborhood that had been the source of a lot of pain for her and to see that it's evolving and changing and to mm-hmm. see our pride flag. And um, so, yeah, you're right. You never know who who sees it and who appreciates it. Yep. Absolutely. So I realized I made a mistake. In our recording that was released two weeks ago, I started a new thing, Monday Jokes with Nia, and then I forgot it in the recording immediately <laughs> after. <laughs> You're leaving people hanging. They were so excited for this new um, this new component of our show, and then yes. the very next one, you forgot it. So I've got a good one for you today. Are you ready? 
Yeah. So you know how there are so many vampire stories, but mostly in Europe? You never hear about vampires in Africa. Okay. Okay. But, I mean, I guess you know more about vampires than I do. Um, I hear that holy water is what gets rid of them. And... Isn't that Toto? Isn't that who sings yeah. that song? <laughs> so there's no vampires because of the rains in Africa? That's what I hear. I cannot wait to start um, hearing feedback about your segment. <laughs> the first round got some great feedback. Um, I've already had listeners send me jokes that I will start utilizing um, so if you also have a joke out there, listeners, feel free to send it my way, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com, and it might be highlighted in a future episode. Yay! <laughs> well, um, it's been a couple weeks since we recorded because we did uh, two at once so that we could have last Monday Memorial Day off. And since then, something really big happened, and I feel like I need to tell our listenership about it. Um, you and I have been friends for a long time, but our relationship really went to the next level. I see. You're I like, have no idea what you're talking about. Because you finally introduced me to your family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that did happen. So Nia's family came to visit. Um, from the great state of Michigan, and I was able to meet them for the first time, and it was fantastic. They were so <laughs> delightful, and it was so wonderful to meet them in person. I met the Mr. Jake Walker, who does our music intro and outro, um, who I'd never met in person, and Nia's grandma, and it was so great. Well, and they all uh, commented, both with you in the room and after you left, that uh, they recognize you by your voice. <laughs> I sound just like I do in person as I do on the show. <laughs> Funny, given that it's the same person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It's so funny to meet people who only know you by your voice and only know you by your podcast. <laughs> totally. Um, but they were lovely. I cannot wait for them to visit again. I, I'm sure they would love to see you again when they come back. <laughs> and then the other thing I thought we should update our listeners on is that we as a podcast. Don't have a pool ha yet. No, yeah, we don't have a fucking <laughs> pool yet. I'm going to. So I bought a pool, like one of those inflatable pools, and Nia is riding me to get it up and get it get it working and I just I haven't been here in the recording two weeks ago you said by the next time we record it would be open and it's not so I'm just holding oh, you accountable to what you said damn well I in like pure Britney fashion yesterday at like 4 30 I said let's do this Gabriel let's go let's go put it up and you know in my head I was like it's gonna take like an hour <laughs> and an hour and a half later, and I'm realizing, okay, there's a lot more planning and prep that should have been involved, and it needs, like, a pad for underneath it and, like, all this kind of stuff. So I was ill-prepared. So now I know what I need. I've ordered what I needed. It's going to happen. But all probably right. not this weekend. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. But no, what I was going to say is that, so our friendship leveled up mm-hmm. and so did our podcast because you received our first piece of hate mail. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Once again, I was like, where the fuck is she going with this? I, I know, know. I'm loving it. I'm like, where? why is she not here with me? She doesn't, I'm, she's not picking up on my mental, my mental waves. Yes, yes. Uh, and I know we said we were going to talk about this today. So um, for listeners, let's hearken back. This is mid-April. Um, and if you follow us on social media, you saw some of this. Um, my uh, tweeting got picked up by a reporter she interviewed me for the story about billionaire philanthropy. And then that article got picked up by a bunch of different news outlets. So it got pretty decent distribution. Um, and I was named specifically in it, as was the podcast. Did you gain uh, personal followers on Twitter? Uh, two. Two. Okay. Yeah. All right. Big deal. <laughs> a real onslaught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then a month and a half later... I got a piece of hate mail because of it. Yep. Um, I appreciate hate mailers who don't have a sense of urgency around their anger. Mm-hmm. You know, they really just want it to fester and brew until they can put that thing in the mail. I mean, that's just a dedication that I don't think I would have. Because they dated it back in April. Yeah. But dated, then you just received it. Yeah. Dated April 26th and I received it June 2nd. Do you know what I also appreciate with um, hate mailers is when they put confidential on the front of it? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so the envelope was just – it came to my home address, which I don't love, but it was addressed to Reframe. Reframe. And then in the corner it said confidential Nia (laughs) Wasink. Which I – I mean – Correct me if I'm wrong. I just assume that all personal mail is confidential if it's not addressed to you. I I have also had the same assumption, but I appreciate this hate mailer being specific. If you were thinking of opening this and you're not Nia Wasink, please stop. It's confidential. It's for her eyes only. Clearly, yes. Shall I read? You, said you knew you knew that it looked ominous. You sent me a picture of it. You were yeah. like, uh-oh, I don't think this is going to be good. So it's all hand-addressed. It's got a Baltimore um, postmark. And then the envelope was just kind of weird. It had, like, water stains on it, but clearly from before mailing. Um, yeah, it, it definitely, it, some red flags. I think you should read it, but I think you should keep out the name that's mentioned on the second page because that person doesn't need their name publicly put out there the university professor i mean i can't yeah well we can explain it then if you don't want that included um okay so the top says regarding john arnold which is the billionaire couple who i was talking about it just says nia wasink dash just who exactly do you fucking think you are Telling other people how to spend their own damn money. Mm-hmm. It is none of your fucking business. Mm-hmm. Please put this on your office bulletin board. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was like an asterisk <laughs> at the bottom, right? Yeah. Please put this on your office bulletin board. What does that mean? And then on a separate page, which was clearly written at a different time because it's in a different pen and it's a different piece of paper, 
P.S. Just like this person we won't name at some university has a list slash tabulation of right wing people she hates, we will put your name and contact info on our lefty list of socialist nutjobs. You made it on the lefty list of socialist nutjobs. I have never been prouder for a moniker than socialist nutjob. I feel like it's a great band name. The socialist nut jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty exciting. My mom was super freaked out by it. I'm sure. Uh, well, I just mom. think it's a badge of honor. I do too. Here's the thing. It means we're ruffling some feathers, right? Not Yeah. We know that the people listening, not everyone's going to agree with everything we say. I mean, it's our own opinions. Um, but if we are saying something that ruffles somebody that much that they took the time to write that letter and send it, then it means that we're on to something. Mm -hmm. And I think to respond to the question from anonymous hate mailer, who the fuck do I think I am? I think I'm a lefty socialist nut job. Yeah, totally. (laughs) You belong on the list. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm totally okay with you being on that. And I'm very proud of you and that <laughs> they read it in this article and I I just want to know so badly if they listen. I can't imagine they do. I don't think they do. Um, you know, the other thing I was thinking in all of this is that, um, you know, the badge of honor to have pissed somebody out, off across the country, mind you. Um, feels really good, but it also feels safe. Like, I don't think this anonymous person's going to get into a plane and come threaten me. I think if I had local hate mail, I would be a little bit more nervous about the whole thing. So I, I want to put that caveat into play. Like, I'm, it's not entirely cavalier the way I'm feeling right now. I just feel a certain distance safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what is that um, quote about... Well-behaved women rarely make history. Am I going to make history by calling out billionaire philanthropy? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) It's a start. And I think it's a level of celebrity that you're going to have to start getting used to. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I want people just like on the street yelling at me about why my critiques of philanthropy aren't relevant because I shouldn't call out what they do with their damn fucking money. Oh my gosh. It's just so funny how upset people get. Oh well. Oh well. Well, it's another day in podcasting paradise. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? <laughs> who knew this is where we were headed? Uh, well, who knew we would be a year and a half into it and still going strong, right? Yeah. I can't We're believe like it. Twenty four episodes away from a hundred. What are we gonna do? I don't, I don't know. know. This is the first time we've actually said it out loud. So stay That's still tuned. Like five months out. Let's give us some space. Stay tuned. We will do something uh, super fun for hundredth episode. If you have any ideas, let us know, please. <laughs> okay, so what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about hybrid events. Uh, Because somebody in the room is intimately having experience with this right now. 
Yes, I am. I am. It is the eve of my organization's first hybrid event. And you're taking time out to record this. I mean, you must just be cool as a cucumber. No, I just have the (laughs) most amazing team, uh, the most amazing team, and um, who are working so hard. Let me tell you this. Um, Hybrid events fucking suck. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. We knew it. We said it before. That, oh, okay, the future of fundraising is hybrid, and we truly are in this really um, weird hybrid stage, right, Mm -hmm. of things are opening up, but depending on where you live, they're opening up more than others, and even if they are opening up and you're making the personal decision of not wearing your mask somewhere, it doesn't mean that that's right then to ask a whole bunch of people to come to a public space, so... I think the nice thing is that we are hosting our event at a theater who already has their own protocols in place. And so that, A, allows us just to kind of defer to what they've been doing. Um, And B, it allows us to kind of like pass off the responsibility, right? Of like, well, we're just following. We're just following. You can't get mad at us. We're just following what what they're doing. So that has helped, but um, it really is like you are planning two events in one. Fun. Fun. So we are going to be live streaming it and having it in person. Mm -hmm. And um, you obviously want to make sure when you have two audiences that they both feel engaged. And so there's been a lot of work done with the program around how do we do it so that the people watching from home don't feel like they're just in the back of the room being a voyeur to something Mm -hmm. that's happening in real time. Um, And then how do we make the people who are in the room feel like they're part of the experience too? Mm -hmm. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of work and it costs more money. When you have to um, incur all the expenses of being in person. And sure, like even if you have a reduced number of people there, there's still stagnant costs that are going to be there no matter what. Like the cost of the venue rental, you know. Um, but then you have the costs as well of the production team to make the at-home experience seem professional. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a feeling that the next few months will be a lot of hybrid events. And then come fall, people will be looking at fully in person, which I'm going to caution against. Um, Yeah. And I've got some key questions here that organizations can ask themselves about events and hybrid. Um, But I was just thinking about some of the ones coming up that I plan to attend. You know, everything from like we've got our pride um, celebration, which is – a motorcade and you can go in person to watch it like a parade it's also streamed online so you can watch from home um so you know starting to get into those spaces without it being a full-blown like pride festival with booths and food and all that stuff um and then like this conference um this fall that we've been to and spoken out at the past the rocky mountain philanthropy institute the decision was made a while back to keep it virtual but they've added now like a happy hour the night before with all these regional locations so hybrid can look really different um yes 
and, and I think both of these cases, it, it was like trying to decide what's really important that we're potentially losing. How do we create some of that? So like for a conference, obviously it's the networking, it's the connecting with people. So how, how can we make that happen? All right, let's do a happy hour. Let's, let's create these regional hubs that can happen. I, I absolutely love that model. Um, and for Pride, it's like, okay, we, we want to provide something that people can come to. And it's safe. It's outside. You know, people, like you were saying, it's a bit about how comfortable folks are and they can choose. And then they can opt into the online, which was similar to what they experienced last year. Right. Have you been to a hybrid event recently? I don't think so, because I think they're really just starting. Yeah. I know of one that happened a couple weeks ago, and um, I think for all intents and purposes was really successful, but they were kind of surprised that the online audience was not as great as they had hoped. Yeah. In fact, they had sold um, a bunch of online tickets, and only about half of the people who even bought tickets, Mm -hmm. so actually put money into it showed up and I think that's going to be really interesting too I mean nobody could have planned for when all of this was going to happen but this convergence of both you know the the restrictions obviously it kind of depends on where you are but even still just like the CDC guidelines of you know mask wearing not mask wearing mixed with uh, cases dropping mixed with summer and school being out has really lended itself to this kind of, um, oh my gosh, I want to get back to my life and back to normal and I want to go on vacation and I want to do all these things. And so people are less, they're less likely, at least anecdotally, I'm hearing less likely to, you know, tune in virtually, um, even if they're not comfortable to be there in person. Yeah. But that might shift, right? Give it a couple months, be at the end of the summer, fall coming, people might be more willing to do that. Yeah, I'm wondering actually what winter will look like. Like now that we have, I don't want to say mastered, but I feel like at least nonprofits feel much more comfortable with online formats, whether it's meetings, events, everything in between. Are people going to want to come out for events when it's snowing and gross in the winter? Is that going to be the, the shift time? And it could just be that the next few months, there is this big push for as much in person as possible. Um, but here's where, like, I think the, the key questions for organizations to ask themselves come into play. Like the first thing, what is the goal of the event? And, and not just financial, if it's a fundraising, but like, what are all of the goals that you're hoping to achieve? That needs to be the primary thing that determines then hybrid or not, if hybrid, how you structure it if in person, how you ensure access, like all of those things come down to what the goals are of the event. And then it's how do you ensure maximum access? So I I know we've hit on this in previous um, episodes, but there were some real benefits to going virtual. um, And it has provided access for a number of people who couldn't attend in person. We don't want to stop that. So it's everything like, ensuring the content is screen reader friendly. It's ensuring that you've got all of the options available for folks that you've had in this virtual environment 
as you go into hybrid. I, I feel like one of the worst things an organization could do would be to open up, <laughs> get new people engaged, and then close off access to somebody. Yeah. I mean, especially any organization in social justice spaces working towards equity, access needs to be a really important thing that you're talking about and considering. Yes, absolutely. I, and on the kind of that, that same vein, we, we often talk about access and belonging together. So if you are going to do hybrid, how do you create a sense of belonging to the people who aren't in the room? How do mm-hmm. you equip your MC mm-hmm. to talk about that effectively? I've been to um, hybrid events in the past, like pre-COVID, where it was definitely like, we're targeting the people in the room and oh yeah, we have some folks listening from home. That never feels good to feel like you're like not really part of it. You're the extra, you're the add-on. Exactly. And you know, we're attempting to do the opposite and it'll be really interesting. I cannot wait to come back next week and tell you all what worked and what didn't work because trust me, I'll be honest about it. Um, You know, we don't know what we're doing. We've never done it before, but we had been given that same advice of, you know, pick who's going to be your central audience. And so um, just by the nature of the event, because it's a performance, we chose that the at-home audience was going to be our major our, our primary audience. And so when we sold tickets for in-person, they were sto- they were sold as live audience tickets, as if you're going to SNL, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're going to see the transitions. It's not going to be a clean performance. You're going to kind of see, see the behind-the-scenes making of it, which means there might be a camera person on stage, you know, mm-hmm. that you're going to see, but the people at home won't. And the people at home will have the smooth kind of um, – experience but even when writing the script and then thinking about the camera angles you know we really had to go back and go okay wait 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 but if I'm at home like shouldn't you know the MC be talking directly to me so shouldn't we have that you know as like a close shot Mm -hmm. of the MC and not far away wide angle as if you're in the back of the room watching Mm -hmm. so it really informed every part of the program um, to be catered in that direction I love that like essentially giving behind the scenes ticket access people love that kind of experience Um, but then also knowing that the people from home are getting like the fully produced version I, I really love that positioning. We'll see if it works. <laughs> but then <laughs> but then I thought, oh, my gosh, now we got to actually sell screening tickets for people to watch from home. I'm like, we've chosen this audience to be the premier audience, and there's going to be five people watching. <laughs> no, there'll be more than that. Mm-hmm. We've sold more than that. But, yeah, it, it did make me nervous for a little bit. <laughs> One of the other questions I have, um, and I think this goes for fundraising, but even more for educational kind of events, conferences, is how to create equal engagement opportunities for on-site versus um, online. Like, does your platform, whatever technology you're using, actually allow participants who are on-site and online to connect and communicate back and forth? Um, Do you have Q&A available to both? Like, this is one, I think, especially from um, like a conference perspective where you need to ensure that the online and the in-person experience are equally accessible and equally engaging. Because you never want somebody at the end being like, oh, well, they only took online questions. Why did I even pay to be in person? Or vice versa. 
Yeah, right. They forgot about all of us online. <laughs> right. The chats lighten up and nobody's paying attention to it. Yep. And that means that exactly what you said, you might have to invest in some sort of platform that allows you to span both audiences. Totally. Um, and I know for our event that we have, um, there's voting involved. And that usually happened when it was an all in-person event. It happened in person. We needed to create a mobile option for people at home, which then meant we were just going to take everything mobile. And so we had to invest in something new. Yeah, I, I think the technology investment is one of those things that uh, I know we talked about last week, too. You just got to do. Like, that's just the way that this is going to happen now. Um, and at the same time, you have to make sure you've got all of the tech support yeah. ready for your participants who are using the online portal. If you have something like voting that's both in person and online, you've got to have some, you know, really specific instructions on that. Um, I was thinking about a virtual conference that you and I attended recently, and the tech stuff was just a fucking disaster. And it wasn't even that they had two audiences. It was just super unclear, and they were updating information constantly. Oh, nope, now it's this. Nope, oh, yep, this was that, and now it's over here. Yeah. And it, it was it made for a total clusterfuck. Um, and so if, especially if you've got two different audiences using a platform in different ways, having really specific instructions for each audience is pretty critical. Absolutely. That ease, the ease of give, of giving. You have to reduce as many barriers as possible for people to give. And since it's so timely and in the moment, um, you know, that means that you can't just direct people to your website if it's going to crash your website. And so you have to mm -hmm. think through all of these different scenarios. And for us, you know, because we are pushing everybody now to give through their phones, for those people in person, all of a sudden we said, oh gosh, now we have 150 people trying to give in person. Do we have the Wi-Fi bandwidth for people to be able to mm -hmm. do that? So, I, I mean, I really do think it takes a lot of planning and you have to think about it through both lenses. Yep. Yep. Hey, well, I think you also touch on something that's important, which is kind of like, how do you harness the benefits that we've experienced in this last year with going virtual into these new hybrid spaces? Um, so I'm thinking like, okay, when I'm doing board retreat facilitation, I'm hearing from introverts a lot more because they've now got the chat feature. Um, they can direct message me as the facilitator and let me know what's going on. So if you're creating an environment for different types of learners, how are you ensuring that that's maintained in person and online? How do you um, harness the benefit of the social media content that you can easily create that speaks, again, to both on-site and online participants? So yes, it's a ton more work. Yes, it could be expensive because you have to have this added technology. And I think there are some real benefits that, if utilized properly, can not only work to the organization's benefit, but most importantly, engage more of your community. Absolutely. And just what you were talking about before, from the equity standpoint, I think that it is the correct direction. Um, mm -hmm. But... You know, I wanted to do an episode on this because I want people listening 
to recognize how much more work it can be. And events are already so taxing on staff. And so I just want people who maybe are not event staff, but are um, supports of that, or maybe even management or CEOs or EDs, board members, board members to hear this and recognize this so that you're paying special attention to what your development staff is doing and going through and how hard they're working and the hours they're putting in because that is the true cost of events that I feel like is always overlooked. Mm-hmm. And I also, I think this is more a hypothesis than anything that's really fleshed out, but I wonder if the added burden and time and energy for hybrid events is because so much of this is new ways of thinking. You're having to, like you said, think through, okay, what's the online experience like? What's the in-person experience like? When we've gotten so good at putting on events one way and it's plug and play year after year. You know, maybe we make some small tweaks, but we're asking organizations to go back to the drawing board and think through these things in really new and different ways that they haven't really been required to before. And so I feel like that is a big part of that extra workload. Oh, for sure. I mean, the learning curve is a real learning curve. And so, mm-hmm. you know, two years from now, come back and see maybe we've got it all dialed. But I do think it's yeah. also an opportunity for organizations to reanalyze their events and maybe choose to do fewer events but do them well than try to do a ton of them and half-ass it or or miss an opportunity to engage more people or another audience um, because they're Mm -hmm. so used to doing it the way they did. Do, Do you remember the Robin Hood concert last year? No. Uh, it's an organization out of, I think, New York City. Um, but they, they switched their gala to virtual. And instead, it was more of like a concert format. And they had Tina Fey hosting. They raised like $115 million, like blowing everything out of the water. Um, but the other interesting thing they said, and I, I read an article about this a while back. I'll have to try to find it. Was that they got so much more data about what was working with their attendees because you're, you're, you're able to track them, right? Like you walk into the door of a gala, so I know you're there and I'll know what transactions you have at the end, but I don't know really anything else about your engagement. Did you participate in the games? Did you engage in conversations right. with folks? But in an online world, you actually can collect a lot of information about what's working for participants, what's not. Like all of a sudden your, your views drop when you go to the sad movie of kids walking in muddy streets in Uganda. Okay, so that movie didn't resonate. Right, right. <laughs> so, like, there, there's some real opportunity here for organizations to harness this um, to improve events going forward in really, really significant ways. That's so interesting. You know, I did see, and I haven't read the whole article, but I did see in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, there was an um, article today, did you see it, about social donors ready to get back to in-person events. Yeah. And I think that that's the key here, right, is that you have so many different types of donors and types of people and everybody, you know, pandemic or not, no pandemic, people prefer to engage in different ways. And Mm -hmm. um, 
so there are going to be those people who are like, nothing beats being in person. And I'd rather not participate unless I can be in person and I can talk and I can see people and I can dress up and I can whatever. And so I know those people are itching, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so doing stuff like you were talking about that RMPI is doing with these um, regional smaller events, I think is great. And I have definitely heard a lot of people doing that of making it smaller, more intimate, but fewer people. So it's not as overwhelming and kind of opening that that door slowly. But Mm -hmm. then to your point with your board retreats and your introverts, and I can't tell you, you know, how many donors I have had that they're not going to go to a gala with 300 people shoved into a ballroom. They weren't going to do it five years ago, and they're sure as hell not going to do it this year. And so Mm -hmm. having that option, that alternative option for them still to be engaged and still feel valued as a guest. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even though it's coming from the comfort of their own home, um, to throw that away, I think is is short-sighted. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. You know, we, we certainly hear, and we've got some data, I'll say some, that supports that in-person experience um, and ability to tell the story and what impact that has. Um, and the fear that people who don't attend those events will always miss out on that. What instead they just get a letter in the mail that says, you know, here's Johnny's story, give us money. But yeah, now we have this opportunity to actually engage them differently and create some of that mission engagement that we always wanted. Uh, I was talking to a friend this weekend and she was <laughs> she was saying how much she hates paddle raises. She thinks it's tacky. She just hates, hates, hates them, never wants to participate in them. Um, and she has a fellow board member for this organization she's involved with and they think the same. So they're doing a golf tournament. Uh, which I thought was so funny because it's like, are those the options? Right. Cattle raise or golf tournament? Right. <laughs> uh, and obviously she knows as well that, that those aren't the only options, but um, really looking at what makes sense for your organization can open up some real opportunity. I, I think the takeaways for our don't, for our listeners are, yes, it's a ton of time, energy, effort, and there's real opportunity if yeah. you think through what this can look like to engage your donors and your community in your mission. Absolutely. And I can't wait to see how this continues to um, to show up in the nonprofit space and what that evolves into. And, you know, here we are a year from now. And what are these same events going to be looking like? What are we keeping? What are we let, letting go of? Um, I know for my virtual gala, we let go of all the auctions, the silent auction, the live auction. We had the best gala we've ever had. We raised more money than we ever had. Um, And sure, the difference is that it was online. It wasn't in person. But it felt so good to let go of those types of transactions, which I know a lot of people love. But this, hey, we'll give you something if you give us something and just make it a very clean we need your help, this is the ask, and getting those direct donations only. Um, but if we move back to some form of in-person next year, I don't know if we we will do that again. Um, well, and what you said is so spot on. It's transactional. It's transactional. Those items aren't about your mission. Nope. Which, the further I get in my fundraising career, 
uh, the less I like those. <laughs> I'm just going right. to say it. <laughs> but I get it. I get it. So stay tuned. Um, Next week, we're not going to be talking all about hybrids. Um, In fact, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from you all, from our listeners and the stories that you've shared. But I will give an update on my event and um, any lessons learned, because I'm sure there will be quite a few. So if you want to hear Brittany's update, make sure you are subscribed on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. If you have thoughts, ideas, questions, stories, email us nonprofitreframe at gmail.com and make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram. And please support your local nonprofits. Give and give generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.